This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Welcome to uh, today's Schwartz Lecture. Uh, the Schwartz Lecture was established in 1974 in honor of Judge Ulysses S. Schwartz. Its purpose is to bring distinguished lawyers, judges, from a range of different walks of life, the academy, from journalism, from government, to share their experiences and perspectives with our faculty and students. Judge Schwartz was a longtime supporter of the university and of the law school. He began his career in 1910 as a special assistant prosecutor here in the city of Chicago, and he ended his career as a member of the Illinois Supreme Court in 1974. The following year, his friends and and family established this lecture. His son, John Schwartz, is a graduate of this law school and became a federal bankruptcy judge here in the Northern District of Illinois, including serving from 1978 to 1989 as its chief judge. And today we're thrilled to welcome Joan Biskupic, our uh, lecturer today. She is CNN's legal analyst, She is an accomplished journalist who has covered the Supreme Court for more than 30 years. She has an undergraduate degree from Marquette, a master's in English from the University of Oklahoma, and a JD from Georgetown. She has held a number of prominent positions, reporting on legal affairs at USA Today, editor in charge of legal affairs at Reuters, a reporter covering the Supreme Court at the Washington Post, and now as legal affairs analyst at CNN. She is author of several books, including biographies of Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, Sonia Sotomayor, and most recently, Chief Justice John Roberts. Her latest book, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of John, Robert, of John Roberts, has received in tremendous praise, and praise for its meticulous reporting, its compelling storytelling, and its deep knowledge of the law, and of the court's inner workings. We're pleased to have her today, and we're also pleased to have, to guide our discussion today, Professor Jeffrey Stone. Professor Stone is the Edward Levy Distinguished Service Professor. Uh, He is, of course, a graduate of our law school. He clerked for Justice Brennan. He is a former dean of the law school and former provost of the university, an influential constitutional law scholar, and a longtime editor of the Supreme Court Review. Please join me in welcoming today's Schwartz lecturer, Joan Biskupic. So, Joan, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Um, How did it happen that you wound up spending your time writing these biographies of Supreme Court justices? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Dean Oh, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, the part about turn it on. (laughs) Not to turn it on until you're really ready. Can you hear me now? Okay, great, yes. That way you didn't pick up all the little quiet things we were talking about before. <laughs> but that was the important part. And the most important part is thank you very much for having me. Uh, as, as, uh, I've, as Jeff knows, I, I grew up on the south side uh, and uh, spent a lot of time in uh, the Chicago area before I went off to school and uh, have come to visit many times and, and just love Hyde Park. So happy to be here. I got interested in biographies uh, 
because I wanted to know more about what made these justices who they are, you know, what their early influences were, their families. My very first one was Sandra Day O'Connor. And because I had covered politics along the way in my journalistic career and the law, I was interested in the fact that this was a a state legislator, a very successful state legislator. Uh, Many people don't know that Sandra Day O'Connor was the first female state majority leader nationwide. And then she came to the Supreme Court, in my mind, knowing how to count votes. So I got very interested in Sandra Day O'Connor as someone who was not just the first woman on the Supreme Court, but a real politician on the court. And then in the process of doing that research, I I love archives, and I spent a lot of time at the Reagan archives in Simi Valley researching Justice O'Connor's nomination, and that got me deeper into Antonin Scalia's Uh, papers there with um, uh, looking at the Reagan choice and I thought he was much more the manifestation of the Reagan agenda so that's how I pivoted to uh, Justice Scalia and you know so so once you get into it once you learn start learning about these people's lives your your appetite becomes quite whetted and you you just can't stop (laughs) so what surprised you most about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in the course of writing this biography of her. Well, actually, it's a Brennan connection, and I'm glad the dean referred to your clerkship for William Brennan. Um, uh, back in 1993, when I was at the Washington Post, uh, a couple colleagues and I delved into the newly opened papers of Thurgood Marshall. And I don't think many people in this room would have remembered what happened over that ordeal, although you, Jeff, might remember. Thurgood Marshall gave his papers to the Library of Congress without his colleagues knowing about it. But we found out, and I was working with Bob Woodward, a man by the name of Ben Weiser, who's now at the uh, New York Times, and an editor of mine, Fred Barbash. And we found out about these papers being open before anybody else did. And so we went and delved through all of these papers. And in May 1993, did a project showing you know, the secrets of the Supreme Court through the eyes of Thurgood Marshall's secret papers. And you know, it was a wonderful series to be part of, but there was this one document I found that planted the seed of Sandra Day O'Connor and a very surprising seed that got me interested in her. And it was a letter that William Brennan had sent to Thurgood Marshall in a, um, in a criminal defense case. And Brennan was explaining to his very good friend Thurgood Marshall while he, why he had bailed on him. And he said, Sandra forced my hand by threatening to lead the revolution. And I thought, Sandra Day (laughs) O'Connor threatened this master of five votes? I mean, that was what, as as most of you know, I'm sure, uh, Bill Brennan's reputation for almost all of his tenure, that he could pull five votes out of a hat, even when it became a much more conservative court. And he's saying that Sandra Day O'Connor forced his hand, and that got me really interested in her, and I was able to parlay the research that I had done uh, in the Marshall Papers into something bigger, and what surprised me was, you know, how she was really operating. Mm -hmm. You know, just yesterday in in the class I was in, um, uh, First Amendment class, we were talking about um, Dun & Bradstreet versus Green Moss, and in that case, if I'm remembering right, and I didn't go back and double check, but... I remember, I'm almost positive it was that case where Justice O'Connor sends a note to Lewis Powell, which I found in the Powell archives down in Lexington, Virginia, that said, if I get with Byron early enough, I think we can move him over, Byron being Byron White. Now, Byron White doesn't sign 
what was the plurality opinion there, but I kind of remember finding those sorts of documents and being surprised at how much maneuvering behind the scenes Justice O'Connor was doing that you know most of you in this room probably wouldn't have suspected. So O'Connor was the first woman justice to serve right. on the Supreme Court. Um, how did that play out in practice? I mean, what was it like for her? Uh, to what extent was she treated differently because she was the first woman? Um, was uh, it an issue? Oh, yeah, it, it completely was. She came on in 1981, and the reason she was selected was actually because she was a woman. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, trailing a bit in the polls in fall of 1980, as he's running against Jimmy Carter, decides to pledge that he would put the first woman on the Supreme Court. So, uh, and it, it helped him a little bit, and Jimmy Carter said something like, well, everyone knew I was going to appoint a woman, but it was kind of like, you know, Ronald Reagan saying this was uh, potentially a, a big deal, but there were a lot of other reasons why, why Reagan won in, in November of 1980. But, uh, so what happens is in March, I, I love finding out this chronology, March 26th, which happens to be Sandra Day O'Connor's birthday, March 26th of 1981, Potter Stewart confides in William French Smith, then the Attorney General, that he's going to be stepping down. This is March 26th of 1981. Four days later, four or five days later, is when Reagan was shot. So Reagan doesn't know for actually a couple weeks that he's about to have this momentous first nomination to the Supreme Court, which is... You know, a very big deal to be just a few months into your presidency and suddenly have this opening. And, of course, he did then look, at a, look for women. And uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, you know, she was only a, a state intermediate court judge at the right. time. She was on an appeals court in Arizona. But, boy, was that woman connected. So not only did um, she had, had a, developed a friendship with Chief Justice Warren Burger, she had plenty of people who had, she had been Nixon's campaign manager in Arizona in 1972, which people, you know, that doesn't seem like that would have been possible, but it was. So she was really connected. And uh, Ken Starr, gosh, you know, all these names that we know now, Ken Starr was one of the two Reagan aides who went out to Arizona to interview her. And he said to me, I can't believe I'm going to Arizona for this intermediate state court judge. What's she going to know? But that woman was so prepared. She had, of course, boned up because she was all about the homework. And plus, she made him a salmon salad. You know? So she, like, she did all these things that would reinforce the idea that I am one of the good women. And, uh, but I'm also a smart woman. And, and then when she, you know, Reagan on the spot, when he interviewed her in the Oval Office, they could, you know, she could talk about the law, but then they could talk horses. And he was sold. Um, you might say a word about uh, O'Connor's relationship with William Rehnquist. Oh, yes. Well, now we know. I knew that they had been friends. I knew that they had dated. But when I did my book, I did not have a lot of her personal correspondence. I had all her legislative correspondence uh, in Arizona, which was really helpful. And then I had her correspondence with other justices, but I didn't have her diaries which Evan Thomas, who, um, my book came out in 05, and Evan Thomas just did a recent biography of her, and he had access to her diaries and more personal correspondence. And William Rehnquist had actually proposed marriage in a letter mm -hmm. uh, to her. So I hadn't realized that. Uh, but they both... This is when they were in college. Yes, in right, right, right. They go into Stanford together. And, um, but they both ended up in very happy marriages and then socialized together in Phoenix, playing charades and going on picnics and doing all these things with their, their families. So it was, uh, that's kind of a, another quirk of history, because if she had said yes, she would have never been on the Supreme Court. Right. 
Yeah. And she broke his heart when he, he proposed. And, right. And she said, no yeah. thanks. Yes, right, right, right. She had already met John uh, O'Connor, whom she married, was also a law student there. And uh, right. he turned her head a little bit further than Bill Rehnquist. So what about Justice Antonin Scalia, um, who was on the faculty here for a yes. number of years? Um, what's interesting about him from your perspective? Well, I, I love to tell the story about, um, well, first of all, just in terms of fi- family dynamics, his father had come over from Sicily knowing no English when he arrived, ends up getting a PhD at Columbia, becomes quite an accomplished professor of romance languages, a collector of lyrics, uh, lyrics, a textualist himself, and as we all know, Justice Scalia became a textualist of the law, and uh, so he had a, a, a very interesting uh, family background, uh, Italian background. His, parent, his mother was one of seven children, his father was uh, one of just two, but he was an only child, and not only was he an only child, he was the only child of his generation. None of his aunts and uncles had had children. So thinking of Justice Scalia's personality and thinking of him being an only child and an only child of his generation was quite uh, meaningful. And I, um, I, I like to tell the story of when I was able to get him to really break down and sit for 12 on-the-record recorded interviews. And it came, I think I told you after this wedding that I ran into him at, the justices, you know, I do these books as a journalist. I don't do them as authorized biographies. I do them as a journalist. And, you know, you have to kind of convince a justice to sit for interviews. And it always works out. So when they initially start out saying, I will not talk to you. You can talk to my colleagues. You can talk to my friends. You can talk to family. But I will not talk to you. I usually say, okay. You know, because I know you will talk. And with <laughs> Justice Scalia, I, I love to tell the story of what, how he... And, you know, we're not talking about any kind of sort of mild-mannered individual who doesn't know his own, didn't know his own self. So he was saying, no, I don't want to talk to you at all. But I ran into him at a, a wedding of a mutual friend. I don't travel in those kinds of circles, but I happened to be at this wedding of a former clerk of his and uh, a woman who I knew. And uh, he comes up to me, and I'm with my husband, and everybody's drinking. You don't look as formidable at a wedding. And uh, he says, well, what do you think you're finding out so far? And I say, you know, I've, I've been going through the archives in Trenton, immigration records. That's where his family had settled. And I've also gone through all the New York Times articles that referred to your father. And I said, do you know the first time that your father you know, as accomplished as he became, was mentioned in the New York Times. And he said no. And I said it was in 1935 when he won a fellowship to study Romance languages from Colombia back in uh, Florence and, and Rome. And I thought, you know, the father had gone on to be this very important scholar. And I thought that was an interesting thing I had said about finding this fellowship. And he said, yes, but did you know I was conceived on that fellowship? <laughs> and I said... No amount of research would have gotten me that little factoid. So, so and then uh, this was a Saturday wedding, and the following Monday he called me up and he said, "What else have you found out?" And that was the start of, as I say, a, a very beautiful relationship. And uh, he he loved, you know, what I was able to find out about all his family. And then he, you know, to his, he didn't like everything. He didn't like much of what ended up in the book, but he liked it enough that he kept talking to me. And when the American Bar Association did a salute in conjunction with the Supreme Court, you know, in the great hall of the court, they used a lot of material from the book. So I was, you know, he liked it enough that upon his death, they didn't think it was going to hurt him to <laughs> decide it. 
Do you remember when you called me when you were working on the book Pat Scalia? I do, because that was a, we had that kind of long-running controversy involving you and the justice. But before he passed, you made your peace, right? Yeah, because of you. Oh, okay. Because, well, bringing people together, that's it. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I had written a, a, an op-ed in, in, I think it was the New York Times, I don't remember, I criticizing the court um, in a, for a decision in the abortion case in which they had, in a 5-4 decision, essentially overruled a prior decision simply because Justice Alito had replaced Justice O'Connor, who had been in the majority in the prior case, and then when Alito joined the court, they basically flipped. And all five justices in the majority were Catholic. And so I wrote this op-ed, which was called Our Catholic Justices, and talked about the fact of, um, uh, I wondered whether they had been as careful in separating their religious views from their from the responsibilities as justices. And I mentioned that I clerked for Justice Brennan the year Roe v. Wade was decided, and I'd watched him struggle with trying to reconcile his religious views as a Catholic with his views as a justice. And um, so I was naive about how provocative and controversial this would be, I have to say. And, and, and Scalia was furious about this. And I kept hearing from people that, you know, he said, I'll never come back to the law school again as long as there's stones on the faculty. Right. And, um, and Joan then called me because you had interviewed him. Yes, and he was, and, you know, that's him. He sits behind this, sitting behind this huge desk and, you know, I'm, I'm never going to step foot on the campus and I will probably won't take their clerks and I'm, you know, like, and I'm, I'm just going to stomp my feet until I, you know, I drop dead kind of thing, you know, because he, he had that way about him, which made him, you know, again, a very colorful figure. And right. I, called, I called you to tell you, to see, to get your response for the book. Right. And so the reason your book was responsible for that being put behind us is that um, when that happened, the issue became so public, and Scalia's, because you described his response when you asked him about it in yeah. your interview, and it became embarrassing to Scalia. And I then heard from some mutual friends that Scalia would really be open to an apology on my part. <laughs> so I crafted a letter in which I said, um, I was very sorry that he was upset <laughs> by, the, by the op-ed. And he called me immediately thereafter and said, Jeff, as a good Catholic, I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that put it aside. Well, it was, you know, to, to the credit of both of you that you would do it and that he would, yeah, he, he, he you know, it was interesting, uh, his personality. There was one day where I showed up and he had been sitting for tape-recorded interviews. And I, fortunately, I got a tip from someone in his chambers that he suddenly was going to say to me, I don't want to have any of these on the record which was a, a very useful thing to know is about to happen to you because you're thinking, I can't live with this. I can't have this happen. I have to, you know, I'm not going to start running material by him after we've gone so far down the road. So it gave me time to think about it. But he, you know, he, and then when I got into his chambers, he said, you know, I've decided, Joan, I think I should, I don't think I should talk on the record. You just come to me and tell me what you want to use. And I said, no, we can't do it this way. You know, we've already, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn. We've already done this this way. We just can't. And he pushed back, and then I pushed back. And then he said, okay. And, but what I always said about him was that I could talk to him like that. Justice O'Connor, I wouldn't even be alive right now. If I had tried that on her, she was so tough. She mm -hmm. was, you know, and everyone used to say to me, oh, you know, Scalia just seems like he would be so much harsher and tougher to deal with. No, he was, you know, he could... He could back down, as he obviously right. did with you. But uh, Justice O'Connor, boy, man, she she didn't become the first woman justice for nothing. You know, she was very determined. So what about Justice Sotomayor? Um, can you tell us about Sure. Her? Now, that book was uh, not a straight biography, the way the others were, because she was, um, as I was deciding I wanted to write about our first uh, Latina justice, 
I knew that she had her own book in the works. So I made it more of a political history, which was, frankly, a lot of fun to do as a journalist. Because as you're reporting on who's up, who's down, who are presidents looking for in their nominees, how do these people emerge? You know, how do, out of all the very smart people sitting in this room, going to law school, bound for clerkships of various sorts, bound for important government jobs, bound for great scholarship, who emerges in the pile to become a justice? And that's what this, this tale was about. How was she the first Hispanic justice? How was it not Miguel Estrada during the um, George W. Bush administration? How was it not Jose Cabranes during the Clinton administration? You know, why was it her? And I had covered a lot of those nomination fights and, I had, and what was intriguing about following her trajectory was seeing how many times along the way administrations said, oh, we're looking at all these Hispanics when they really weren't. You know, it wasn't until, obviously, President Obama in 2009 chose her. And so they was kind of looking at her as someone who's very much of an actor in her own journey, unlike David Souter, mm-hmm. who we both know who he succeeded, William Brennan, and it was, you know, plucked there by pals from New Hampshire who said, let's make it him. Whereas Sonia Sotomayor just very much helped herself get on the district court, uh, ch- uh, selected, recommended by Moynihan, San- uh, Senator Moynihan, but nominated by George H.W. Bush, and then, you know, just what happened along the way. And it was during that episode that she first met John Roberts, mm-hmm. who was a deputy solicitor general at the time and had a hand in actually not so much encouraging her nomination at first. Um, what, what about her role on the court itself? I mean, how, does she, how, how well does she function on the court with the other justices? Um, and do you have a sense of how, whether she's pleased with her role on the court? I think she's very pleased. I think she breaks away from the nine. Uh, one thing that I was told as I was doing my reporting both on her and then, you know, with the subsequent appointment of uh, Elena Kagan in 2010 is that Justice Sotomayor sees herself often as one justice, one justice working on her own idea of what the law should be, what her mission should be, and probably many people in this room have seen her speak about her books. She's very active outside of the court. She's very active as a single justice making her wishes known. Just on Monday, she dissented alone, if I'm remembering right, Mm -hmm. in one of the orders. Whereas Justice Kagan is very aware of herself as one of nine, uh, negotiating with the nine, trying to uh, broker compromises, trying to find the middle ground. So I think think they're both very satisfied with what their individual roles are, but Justice Sotomayor will probably be remembered when the time comes down the line for someone who made her mark on the court, but also very much outside the court. She talks about wanting to reach as many children as she can. Mm-hmm. You know, the, her most recent book is a book for children called Just to Ask, which is about her struggle with diabetes. So she sees herself in a, um, in a role that is a much broader presence than most of the other justices do. So... John Roberts, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about his, his personal background? Sure. And I should tell you, you know, just one thing I like to remind folks about is, you know, we've had 45 presidents to date, but only 17 chief justices. So that tells you the magnitude of his role in our lives. And, you know, he's, uh, he's been on the court since 2005, so we're just in his 14th year. Uh, and he's a for all uh, appearances, seems healthy and will be going on for at least 
twice that amount of time. He's only 64 years old. And he's, uh, he grew up in northern Indiana, uh, not too far from here. Uh, you know, family would fly into Midway often enough. And uh, uh, in a beach community called Long Beach that used to be a vacation area for uh, wealthy Chicagoans. And his parents, his father was very much a product of the steel industry when the steel industry, when steel was king, you know. And so that was a very hierarchical world that his father was part of. And I, I liken that in the book a lot to, you know, the hierarchical world of the federal judiciary. But his parents, uh, in some ways, married across the tracks. Uh, his father, uh, John Glover Roberts Sr., uh, came from an English-Irish family that settled in the Pennsylvania area, mining coal country and then steel country uh, back in the mid-1800s. And then his mother, uh, her, her uh, family names were Podraski and uh, Gumska. Nobody was really quite sure how to pronounce the other family name in that family, but it was a Czech. You know, the borders were always shifting with the Hungarian Empire, but, you know, essentially Slo- Slovakian. They came about... Uh, 20, 30 years later uh, to this region of Pennsylvania and were not as uh, well off. They weren't as educated. They, they struggled much more with um, more menial jobs, you know, as a whole, as a whole. So uh, the father, who was the youngest of 10 children, marries Rosemary, uh, his mother, and uh, they essentially said, and the mother never went to college. And that was her uh, lifelong regret, uh, you know, anybody in the family who talked about his mother talked about her regret of never going to college and in many ways living out some of her dreams through her only son. He was the only boy in a family of four. He had three sisters, one older, two younger. He was, as anybody could observe even now in his life, very, very smart. And I love reading this letter. I brought it with me because I will often start more formal speeches with a letter that he wrote <coughs> Uh, on December 22, 1968, when he was an eighth grader in a parochial school, you know, he grew up in an area that was a little better off than what you would, you know, experience in many of the, um, in, in, in Chicagoland here, but, you know, he had a lot of the traditional upbringing that many Chicagoans had, you know, went to a parochial school, attached to a church, and he was essentially expected to go to a, a parochial high school, you know, back then it was all boys or all girls, but he had the good fortune of, uh, around the time that he was applying to college, uh, high school, pardon me, a very fancy Catholic boarding school had opened up. And, you know, in the model of East Coast elite schools. And he knew he wanted to go to that. And he wrote a letter to the headmaster that says the following. Dear Mr. Moore, and he's only 13 at the time, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd, and I feel that the competition at La Lumere will force me to work as hard as I can. At an ordinary high school, it would probably be easy to stay ahead. I realize that going to La Lumere will mean a lot of study and hard work, but I feel confident that these labors will pay off in large amounts when it comes time to apply for admission to college. I'm sure that by attending and doing my best at La Lumere, I will assure myself of a fine future. And then he closes. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education. Sincerely yours, John Roberts, Jr. Now, of course, he was accepted. He becomes number one in his class. And again, you know, this isn't, this isn't the kind of education that your average Midwestern college Catholic boy would get. But he was able to get this. 
He then goes to Harvard, does Harvard College in three years, goes to Harvard Law School, uh, wins you know, all sorts of honors uh, along the way during his time at Harvard. But he bristled. He did not like uh, Cambridge. He, uh, you know, was, we're, we're still in the sort of 60s fallout in the early 70s, didn't like the lingering anti-war protests, uh, pretty much, you know, stuck to his studies and, and did those very, very well and worked so hard that uh, lots of his pals remember him either holding that, clutching a bottle of Pepto-Bismol or sometimes just being exhausted from, from study. So he, it, you know, he obviously is super smart and much of it came naturally, but he was not going to take anything for granted. Um, and how did he go from there to being on the Supreme Court? Okay, so he, um, he graduates from Harvard uh, Law School. He was managing editor of the Law Review, and he um, is tapped for a clerkship with Henry Friendly, who was on the Second Circuit, and many people regarded Judge Henry Friendly as the greatest appeals court judge of his era. Uh, Merrick Garland, had uh, a name familiar to probably everyone in this room, had had that clerkship two years earlier and had a little bit of a, a, a hand in helping him to that spot. And then once he got with Henry Friendly, he was applying to um, clerkships at the Supreme Court, and, uh, and it was a, a, a very strong match between him and Bill Rehnquist. Mm-hmm. And I, as you know, Jeff, I, I paint in this book this kind of dichotomy that the chief always feels between the model of Henry Friendly, who was quite a judge's judge, you know, much more of a neutral professional jurist versus William Rehnquist, super smart, first in his class at Stanford, but very ideologically driven. And, you know, where does, where does John Roberts fall? And right after clerking for William Rehnquist, he opts for the more ideological route, gets a job in the Reagan administration, coincidentally recommended by William Rehnquist to Ken Starr, who at the time was working as chief of staff to the attorney general under Reagan. So John Roberts works first in the Justice Department and then in the White House Counsel's Office, makes some deep, deep pals there. In fact, he is still very close to Fred Fielding, who was White House Counsel under um, Ronald Reagan, and all those good friends from from that group, they still get together. They were together for uh, Fred Fielding's 80th birthday last spring. And so he... He gets this core group of people, and in some ways, he replicates this this boarding school life. You know, he's got these core men who is you know are loyal to him, and he's loyal to them. And uh, I worked very hard to get those people to talk <laughs> as I as I went along. And then, so he works for Reagan. Uh, then he works in the H. W. Bush administration as Deputy Solicitor General to Ken Starr, who was Solicitor General. And then he goes off in private practice, and uh, if any of you remember when he was nominated, he had, uh, it was bandied about that he argued 39 cases before the Supreme Court, both in public and private practice. And uh, should we jump ahead to 2005 when he sure. gets the job? Okay, so here we are. <laughs> this is, this is I, I, I remember these weeks so well because, okay, so it's July 1st, 2005. I am finishing up the Sandra Day O'Connor biography, thinking my deadline's January of 2006. You know, I'm cruising along, and on January 1st, uh, July 1st, 2005, she announces she's going to retire. At this moment, 
as I know you remember, and, and anybody who was sort of watching Supreme Court politics at the time, we all thought Chief Justice Rehnquist would be the one who would leave. He was dying of thyroid cancer. He could hardly speak. He was not spending much time at the court, and everyone thought the next opening was going to be Chief Justice Rehnquist. But Sandra Day O'Connor, who was, I think she was only 75 at the time, she was still young in Supreme Court justice's terms, he had a husband who was very sick with Alzheimer's, and she decided she had to take care of him. And um, so she announces her resignation. And, you know, I remember that moment because, you know, but my book's not done, you know, but I, you know, so I had to quickly do that. And, and here's the interesting thing about John Roberts. John Roberts, at that moment, is on the D.C. circuit, but he's only been there for about two years. All the other men, and they were mostly men, almost exclusively men, who he was in competition with, had been on appeals courts much longer. We had Mike Ludig down on the Fourth Circuit. We had Sam Alito on the Third Circuit, uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. They had all been around appointees of uh, Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush. And so John Roberts is looking young. In fact, he was just 50 at the time. He's looking young. He's looking not so experienced. And there's some question about how loyal he's going to be to the cause. But it's O'Connor's seat at this moment. And, you know, she's not only the first woman, but she had, you know, in her post-Bush v. Gore world, had moved over a little bit to the center and looked like uh, much more of a centrist jurist than a Ronald Reagan conservative. So there was a lot of politics in the air, and uh, George, H. W., George W. Bush, pardon me, chooses John Roberts in part because everyone's thinking, well, let's get somebody who isn't as controversial as, for example, Michael Ludig would have been. And, you know, there'll always be the chief seat coming up, mm-hmm. everyone's thinking. And he seemed like the safer choice. And not to reinforce the whole idea of networking and, you know, a tight little core group, but a man who had a hand in that was Brett Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm. who happened to be working for George W. Bush at the time. There are more than just 10 people in the world, but it seems like I'm only mentioning 10, (laughs) you know, including Ken Starr over and over, who Brett Kavanaugh did work for in many capacities. So um, George W. Bush clicks with John Roberts, and he decides to nominate him in mid-July 2005 for Sandra Day O'Connor's seat. And Sandra Day O'Connor has a great line about, well, you know, I wish it were a woman, you know, which, but, he, but she still liked uh, John Roberts, and there was a certain, you know, symmetry to that because John Roberts had actually helped with her confirmation back in 1981. So what happens then? Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist dies on September 3rd, so we're just within a few weeks, and what else is happening in the country uh, again, some of you might not remember, but it was Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And the George W. Bush administration was so besieged by complaints about how poorly it had handled the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. You know, people, you know, every, people were in the Superdome down in New Orleans. I mean, it was just a disaster. And, and President Bush had that line, you know, uh, heck of a job, Brownie, yeah, to right. the, the FEMA coordinator who was himself underwater in many ways. So when Chief Justice Rehnquist dies, there was some interest among Vice President Cheney perhaps to elevate Scalia. There was interest by some more conservative members of the administration to look to Mike Ludig uh, uh, or maybe Jay Wilkinson, who was a little bit older and presented much more of an experienced jurist. But George W. Bush wanted no more headaches. I mean, he was just struggling so much with the aftermath of Katrina 
John Roberts had presented himself so well with his courtesy visits, initial courtesy visits with senators for the associate justice job that they all walk in on Sunday morning. It was, uh, the chief died late on a Saturday night. Remember that moment vividly when I got the call on that too. And, you know, he died late that Saturday night, Sunday morning. Uh, President Bush meets with his closest advisors, and the thing he says as they walk in is, I'm going with John Roberts. You know, you can't talk me into Scalia, you can't talk to me into anybody else. It's, you know, it was a, an easy choice at that moment. And John Roberts, youngest chief justice in more than 200 years. Mm-hmm. He was only 50 years old, and, you know, here he is 15 years later almost. How would you evaluate Roberts' performance in the 14 years now that he's been on the court? I would say it's evolved. You know, when he came in as chief, um, I remember talking to Justice Scalia saying, you know, Bill Rehnquist had been elevated as chief. He had come on in January of 1972, an appointee of Richard Nixon, and he had spent 14 years as an associate justice, seeing how they all worked together, seeing where the bodies were buried, seeing who was up, who was down, who was petty, who wasn't, who you could work with, who you couldn't. And, you know, so when he became chief in 1986, he sort of knew what was what. And he also had, he knew what he wanted in the law. So if they weren't going to be with him, he was like, fine, cast your votes, I'm moving on. It was, you know, he had that kind of approach to himself. Now John Roberts comes in and he's, he had clerked there in 7980 for then Associate Justice Bill Rehnquist. You know, he hadn't really managed things. Mm-hmm. You know, the last managerial job he had essentially had 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 been at the Law Review. But, you know, seriously, you know, he had not been a manager. And here comes, here he is with eight people who are appointed for life who are certain they're the smartest persons in the room. They've been together for 11 years. There hadn't been a change in the Supreme Court since Breyer had come on in 94. So that was tough. He had, he had to figure out how to navigate among a lot of personalities when he was certain he was the smartest person in the room, but they were even, you know, like, so you <laughs> had to deal with that. And then, of course, he had, you know, his original mantra was, I want to decide things as narrowly as possible so that we can get as many votes on as possible. But, you know, you just refer to that Carhartt case where Sam Alito comes on just a few months later. Sam Alito then gets tapped for the O'Connor vacancy, and that made a huge difference, as Jeff was writing. You know, they have Sandra Day O'Connor succeeded by Sam Alito meant a real shift in the law, including mm-hmm. on abortion. And there were a lot of 5-4 decisions that John Roberts didn't want to have to have his court identified with, but those were the breaks. Um, how does he get along with the other justices? Well, I think that that's been a work in progress. I, that was one thing that surprised me, as I, because he presents... You know, he's in very structured settings. He is, he's got fabulous sense of timing. He's got a, he's a wonderful speaker. He, um, he projects a real collegiality. And when I was doing interviews, I was surprised at how much tensions there were behind the scenes. And they weren't really um, just ideological. That there were some people on his side, so to speak, who weren't quite sure if he was an honest broker on things. There was a really, there was a lot of fallout from his switched votes in the Affordable Care Act case in 2012. Uh, you know, with Rehnquist, love him or hate him, what, what you saw was what you got. Mm-hmm. And with John Roberts, he was 
trying to figure out, you know, exactly what his hand was. Uh, if I was told it once, I was told it a million times. He keeps his cards close to the vest. And so there were, there were tensions. But one thing I have to say is, if you're an outsider and you write about tensions at the court, they close ranks pretty quickly. We love each other. You know, like, so, you, and that's, that's okay. I get that. You know, they're appointed for life. And uh, I'm... I'm still here, but um, <laughs> I don't have that kind of appointment. So, you know, so you're aware of, I, I became aware of that, and I also became aware of, you know, just as I'm finishing up this book, as, as you know, books take a long lead time, Justice Kennedy is leaving. Now, Justice Kennedy was in some ways, you know, he's the ideological center. He was the glue for all of them. He, he was the decider. And now John Roberts, who has a much different sensibility than Anthony Kennedy, he's at the ideological middle. So his, he's now not just someone who has to figure out how to, you know, how he wants this court to be viewed publicly. He now has even more authority in his vote. So it, things, things are changing all the time there. And then you have the pressure from the Trump administration. He's, um, he's very close to someone who used to teach here, Elena Kagan. Um, he's also, I think, closer to Brett Kavanaugh than he is to Neil Gorsuch, just because he, um, in the Solicitor General's office back in the H.W. Bush administration, both of them were there. They both uh, were ju- judges on the D.C. Circuit. They, come, they run in, even though they're separated by about 10 years, they run in similar cl- crowds, have similar backgrounds. So uh, I think there's a natural compatibility between justices... Um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh and the chief, uh, not so much with um, with Neil Gorsuch. So you know, it's always it's like with the, you know, it, it has become cliche what Byron White used to say: with every new justice, you have a new court. But it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think Roberts is likely to lead the court on issues like um, abortion, affirmative action, gay rights, where Kennedy was the swing vote and he's now gone? I think that um, I, be, I think that he and the court have become much more unpredictable, in part because I, you know, the chief, if he were listening to this, and he won't be, <laughs> would, would be thinking, oh, she's so wrong. But I think there's there's a certain sequencing that happens. That he's not just looking at a single case; he's always kind of stepping back and thinking, what else is happening? What are people seeing? Uh, he's very aware of how things might be received. So not only is he looking at the facts of the case, the law of the case, but the moment we're in, in terms of the law and politics. So, for example, the oral arguments in the DACA, the deferred um, uh, um, deportation for childhood arrivals uh, that was just argued. Going into it, I was very aware that he had been 100% with the Trump administration in Trump versus Hawaii on the travel ban. Super aware of that. I was also aware because I had found out that he had switched his vote in the census case. He at first was with the Trump administration, then changed his vote. I was suspecting, and I knew how he had voted in the DAPA case, the parental arrivals thing uh, in 2016. I knew that he had voted for that. So I knew he would be inclined to want to support the administration. But I was also aware that he's got abortion on the table there. He's got the Title VII gay rights cases there. He's got, he'll be presiding presumably over an impeachment trial. He's got a lot of other things going on. Could he possibly be looking for an off-ramp to not give Trump too many five to four wins? And again, you know, in some ways that might sound cynical. That might sound, you know, just, you know, 
kind of looking at them in a lens that they prefer would prefer not to look at have them viewed. But I know from experience in dealing with these justices that there are just lots of things at play, and especially for the chief because he is aware. And he had, you know, I've found times when he did switch his vote mm-hmm. in part because of what he viewed was, you know, perhaps a, a legal off ramp, but also something that would perhaps perhaps protect the institution more and and his legacy. I'm, I'm going to ask Joan one more question and then open it up okay. to the uh, to the audience. But um, so, who's your next justice? So hard because <laughs> I, I've uh, I I have to tell people that when I uh, pitched writing about John Roberts to the publisher who had done the um, uh, Justice Scalia book and the uh, Sonia Sotomayor book for our Strauss and Drew, my editor there wasn't interested in, in the chief. Um, you know, he didn't have a naturally interesting demographic background. You know, this guy from Indiana. And, uh, but I was, I was really interested. I thought, you know, again, as I said at the beginning, only 17 chief justices. He's so enigmatic. You know, what is he all about? And, you know, fortunately in the process of writing this book, I, um, you know, I, he became more relevant because of uh, Kennedy's departure. But it was, it's a heavier lift when you don't have the natural first woman, first Italian-American, first Latina. So I am right now in the process of kind of deciding, is there another individual? Is there a person? Because biography is so much fun, and it's, frankly, as a writer, you know, the narrative is built in. You've got a life that you can track. But I'm uh, looking a little more broadly this time at some relational things on the court, uh, some of the pressures that the justices are feeling because of uh, an unusual administration, and we don't know what's going to happen in 2020 if uh, President Trump will get another term, or if the new if a new president would put pressure on the court in a different way. We just don't know, and I'm thinking that um, this this court in this era bears watching, and I just have to figure out the right lens. So that's all by way of saying I don't know yet, and I have to choose carefully because once you choose something and you get a contract, you in some ways remove yourself from life and you never see any good movies and none of your friends like you and your family hates you. and you know, So you, you have to choose very carefully. <laughs> um, questions? Oh, come on. Yes, Jerry. Thank you. This was fascinating. During the W. Bush years, Congress passed a couple of jurisdiction stripping bills that the court essentially invalidated. Did you have any sense of how Roberts thought about those? And he's the 9-11 case. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Reagan administration, where he was had a core job giving legal advice on that, on court stripping, the idea, just to remind everyone of what I'm sure you know, is that back in the Reagan era, uh, some of the legal teams suggested having the court not get involved in abortion, having the, because, you know, we're still, we were still very much in a strong Roe v. Wade era. Uh, having the court not get involved in church-state cases. And John Roberts had to write a memo uh, sort of facing off against Ted Olson, another name that comes up all the time, uh, about you know, the validity of court stripping. And, I, and what, I, what I believe he has always thought is that as a, a matter of constitutional law, it might be okay. You know, that, that's back in the day when he was wearing that hat. But as a matter of public policy, you're just asking for you're just sort of asking for trouble. You know that it's not it's not worth it, 
and you know courts evolve, courts change. And I think, you know, it's a very big question right now how John Roberts will regard the scope of, you know, essentially his jurisdictional mandate, especially relative to the executive branch. You know, all of you, you know, were aware of uh, Attorney General Barr's speech, uh, you know, and his idea of executive authority, which was something that, you know, John Roberts very much believes in, but will he believe in it as strongly at this moment with President Trump in the White House and trying to protect the integrity of the court. We're not calling you. Somebody back there at the microphone. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, when John Roberts is called upon to preside over an impeachment trial, how do you think he'll approach that duty? And especially if there are many senators like Lindsey Graham who are urging simply voting it down without a trial at all, how do you think he'll deal with that problem? Okay, that's a very relevant question because at, at, uh, the only duty of the Chief Justice that's actually specified in the Constitution is as the person who presides at a Senate trial for impeachment um, of the President. And he's, uh, I know that um, his people are studying up on it. He's got his former mentor, William Rehnquist, presided in 1999 over the Bill Clinton. Uh, trial, and I went and found uh, William Rehnquist's correspondence during that era uh, that's at the Hoover, and I'm sure that uh, people who were part of Rehnquist's team, who happen to still be on the scene now with the current chief, are helping inform him on that role. And it is largely ministerial. You know, he, he will... Uh, he works with the parliament from, you know, I've gone back and looked at a lot of the transcripts and tried to figure out what kind of role would this current chief want. And this current chief does not want to decide whether, uh, whether the, uh, the president gets convicted or not. I could guarantee you that. So he doesn't want to have to cast any deciding vote. But what he does is he makes a trains run. And the, the Sen you know, if, if the senators themselves will agree on their own rules, and then he will be the enforcer of sorts with the parliamentarian at his hand. You know, Rehnquist was always turning to the parliamentarian saying, you know, this, that, that kind of thing. So I think, and, and you might not remember, but there was a motion <coughs> made by Robert Byrd to dismiss the Clinton um, impeachment charges uh, from the House. And for that, you only need a majority vote, and you, he didn't get it. You know, there was enough, you know, there, uh, Democrats, of course, were in the minority at the time when Bill Clinton um, was uh, being tried in the Senate. And uh, Senator Byrd, it was kind of an odd motion of his to dismiss these because he couldn't stand what Clinton had done, but he was just so, you know, on the, you know, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing, but he just wanted it to all go away, and he felt like the whole thing was devolving into this terrible partisan show. And that motion failed, but then, of course, uh, you need two-thirds to convict, and there was no way they got two-thirds. And, in fact, that vote, that vote showed that there were enough, um, there was never going to be two-thirds for those charges. And, you know, that's what... You know, conventional wisdom right now is probably right, that there's no way Mitch McConnell, uh, the, where we're at, uh, and the information that uh, the country now has, and, you know, the impeachment inquiry hearings are going on as I speak, but, you know, it doesn't look like the Senate will ever be able to come up with two-thirds to convict if the House ends up impeaching. But I think the chief will 
be careful to keep his role as neutral as possible and as almost pro forma as possible. It's a, it's a headache job, actually, for him. You know, the old chief kind of liked it. I don't know if you remember, he was up there with the stripes he had put mm-hmm. on his robe, you know, from a Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan thing, and he had just written a book called Grand Inquests about impeachments that had come out in 1992. So he was, you know, he was all into it, but he, he considered it a bit of a hassle because, you know, you're over on the other side of uh, East Capitol hearing cases in the morning, running over in the afternoons to preside over this trial, and for anybody who's watched the Senate, mm-hmm. as you know, you know, they're constantly, like, delays and all that, and the old chief was always on the clock, so um, we'll have to see how John Roberts uses his time. But we'll all see. That's the great thing about these impeachment hearings, uh, is that, and the impeachment trial, they will be on TV, whereas the Supreme Court is not on TV. Right. Yes? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I, we've talked about this. Why don't I just do the dead people? You know, it's just so much, <laughs> it's so much easier. They're not going to come complain, that's for sure. You know, like, you're not going to have the same issues that I have all the time after these things come out, and then, you know, I have to kind of rebuild these relationships. Um, but, you, you know, you're not going to have, and you know what material's there. You know kind of, it's a really finite um, project. But I, um, I think it comes from the fact that I am still a journalist. And even though I'm not covering the Supreme Court as our main daily journalist, and I haven't done that since I left the, the post in USA Today, I've always been now more into projects or analyses. I, the, the chase of what's happen, happening now and the relevance of what's happening now, and inevitably, as I'm doing reporting for any of these books, I get great stuff for my day job. It's, that's nice. And I also feel like, why not? You know, the chief, one of the many things the chief said to me, you know, to try to discourage me was, you know, it's too early. Don't want to do it. You know, wait until I'm dead. And I would say, when you're dead, I'm dead. You know, like, so forget it. Forget it. Well, this, well, that's not what, how this is going to happen. But you're, so, you know, he, uh, many of my conversations with him were off the record. Some materials he put on, on background that I could use. But I, so I'm only telling you what, you know, mainly what I was say, telling to him is that, you know, look at how important he is. And he's only gotten more important. And so that's, that does mean it makes it more exciting for me, but it also makes it a limited. Now, the, I, I really felt like my O'Connor book held up for many years. And the one that came out now is, you know, essentially 14 years later and has, you know, now can fully assess with many more documentation uh, pieces that are available, kind of the, the entire O'Connor, what O'Connor represented to the country in a way that when I did it right as she was leaving was, a, was different. And I don't think, other people have done Scalia books, but, for, but you know, Scalia in 2009, even though he you know, hung in there until obviously 2016, most of his world most of what I, I would have wanted to say I had in hand mm-hmm. because his, his young life was so intriguing. And with the chief, many people have said to me exactly what you said. You know, like, there'll be so much more and things will change. And I was so aware of, you know, just when I was facing deadlines, you know, is Anthony Kennedy going to stay? Is he going to go? And then, you know, I, 
Um, remember in November of 2018 was when John Roberts had that line about there are no Obama judges, Trump judges, whatever, you know, we just have these neutral people. And I was begging that into the final galleys with the editor. And uh, my editor said, this is not a newspaper. This is a book. <laughs> this is a book. You have to cut it off. But I was, and for that one, like, I hung up that phone and I called the production manager. Hey, how about trying to get, you know, like, I was constantly, like, treating it like, a, you know, something that you wanted the most, the freshest stuff in there. And, and I was glad that I was able to, you know, get those in. But it, I think it's part the nature of the kind of work I do. And, you know, probably, you know, the, the uh, law professors here who have much more of a historian's eye would want to wait. And maybe I'll eventually do that down the road. But for now, it's, it's kind of fun as it's, as it's working. And I also feel like it's, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. Yes. That's right. You know, a, a, question, a question I get often is, you know, what will we do on Roe v. Wade? Now, at this point, he has never voted against an abortion regulation in any case during his time. So that's, you know, that's a touchstone for me. But then look what happened in February of this year, 2020, when the Louisiana abortion law was about to go into effect. And it's very similar to one uh, from Texas that had been struck down with John Roberts in dissent, but yet the Supreme Court had struck it down in, in 2016. John Roberts cast the fifth vote with the four liberals to block that law from taking effect. Now, if Anthony Kennedy had still been on the court, if, if, there, if, you know, if something else was happening, I just wonder if he would have cast that vote. You know, I, in fact, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have needed to. He, and he, he probably would have not wanted to, but we will soon see what he does because um, the Louisiana abortion regulation is now going to be heard on the merits this court term. It's the June medical case. Right. So for all these things, what I'm seeing are new, new data points. I think that John Roberts still very much uh, would quarrel with Roe v. Wade and with the 1992 Casey decision that reinforced that. But does he want to be presiding over a court that reverses this landmark that's now nearly you know, half a century old? Will he do that, especially when everyone's looking at this court as being more political? And he's out there saying defiantly, we are not political. So I, I think that's all in the mix. I think uh, the one area that I, uh, as Jeff knows, that I, I said in the book where I don't think he will have qualms is I think on race, he still very much thinks that affirmative action and any racial disease <coughs> are bad. And he you know, had completely owned his Shelby County versus Holder decision, uh, his decision in parents involved uh, that Justice Kennedy did not join where he sort of reinterpreted Brown v. Board of Education, still really stands out as something that has a, you know, a decision that very much is against any kind of racial remedy. And a clash he had with Sonia Sotomayor was over, you know, do those kinds of programs do more harm than good? And he is adamant, has always been adamant, that they do more harm than good. And the Harvard affirmative action case is marching its way up there. So I think on something like that, he will be more predictable just because of where he's been. But on um, 
issues of um, reproductive rights, there might be more play in the joints. And, and I think on issues involving President Trump and perhaps his, the tax cases that are up there now, would he, would he reject what um, Judge Bob Katzman wrote on, in the Second Circuit, hanging, his, the, uh, hanging the Trump idea that he, doesn't, that he can't even be investigated at all while he's president? not just indicted, but investigated at all? And would, would uh, John Roberts reject the notion that U.S. v. Nixon doesn't allow that? You know, so um, I think there are just so many different issues on executive power that he might um, step back from in a certain way that he wouldn't if times were different. And I, I, just to let you know what I was talking about, probably most of you know, there are two Trump tax cases that have now hit the Supreme Court. One comes from the Second Circuit, and it was an opinion by Judge Katzman for a three-judge panel, rejecting Trump's, um, the Trump arguments that a sitting president cannot, is immune from any kind of criminal proceeding while he's in office. And then the other one involves the powers of the House to um, have oversight and... Um, over, you know, again, trying to obtain financial documents from a president. Last question. What was Chief Justice Roberts' reaction to your book? That's off the record. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, He has said things to other reporters. The report that they all scurried back and told me about um, in various ways. Uh, I would just say that from what I know from others, not from my own personal experience, was that uh, uh, he still would prefer that it was not written. And, until we're both dead. One of us before the other, maybe. <laughs> I should say I highly recommend it. It's a really fascinating, well-written, and engaging book. And you learn a lot about the nature of the Supreme Court as an institution, about the nature of the executive branch, um, how these decisions get made. So I, I highly recommend the book. It's a terrific read. Um, well, and one thing I was going to say, people in his family, like I'm hearing from, I hear from like, the poor guy, people keep going up to him asking him to sign it, which I'm sure is not fun <laughs> at all. But, um, but I also, um, or they, you know, they say I'm going to ask him to sign it kind of thing. But um, I have heard from relatives of, relatives of his who um, want copies and all that. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, when, you're, when you're the subject of, um, of anything, is we all know whether it be the, the wrath of Scalia or, right. uh, or a, a biography, you, you, uh, you want things to go exactly your way. Right. And it's not, by the way, I mean, when I read it, I didn't, I didn't perceive it as sort of harshly critical of Roberts. I mean, there are pieces where mm-hmm. you, I think, quite sensibly criticize him the way you would criticize anybody for various activities. But uh, apparently it's been taken uh, the wrong way. Um, <laughs> thank you all very much. Thank Joan Biskupic. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.